So, what day is today? Is this a trick question? It's April Fool's. How unspiritual is that? (laughs) It's Resurrection Day, but it's also April Fool's. Yeah, April Fool's Day. And April Fool's Day is a day for pranks. And, of course, the victim who falls for it or who is the object of it is the April Fool. Um, Some of you here have a lot of mischief in you. I know that. No, it is true. It is true. In case any of you are thinking about pranking the pastors, be strong. Resist temptation. Historians don't actually know when pranking on April 1st started. They think it was in the 1700s. But there have been some famous media pranks. On April 1st, 1985... Sports Illustrated, April 1st edition, ran a fantasy story about a rookie pitcher named Sid Finch who could throw a fastball over 168 miles an hour. It is so good. You ought to read it online. It's online. You need to read it. George Plimpton wrote that. On April 1st, 1996, Taco Bell announced that it had agreed to purchase Philadelphia's Liberty Bell and rename it Taco Liberty Bell. On April 1st, 1998, Burger King advertised a left-handed Whopper, and thousands of customers tried to order it. (laughs) I probably would have, too. Probably one of the best was on April 1st, 1957. The BBC has a very popular program named Panorama, and it opened April 1st, opened with a report saying that since spring had come early that year, The spaghetti harvest in Switzerland was early, too. And they showed a video of peasant women harvesting spaghetti from trees. With with straight-laced British humor reported, quote, Spaghetti's oddly uniform length is the result of years of dedicated cultivation. The ravenous spaghetti weevil, which wreaked havoc on harvests of previous years, has finally been conquered. So the, you know, you just... The British, the, the, the BBC switchboard was swamped with phone calls of people asking where they could get spaghetti plants. And the producer had, had people tell callers that for the best results, they should plant cans of spaghetti and tomato sauce in their gardens. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times I was the April Fool because my college students loved pranking me. And my secretary, who had the key to my office, was complicit. Um, One day, one April 1st, I was rushing to teach an 8 o'clock class. And I had to grab a book that was on my desk to help teach the class. So I opened up my office, and and there on the floor were 200 paper cups, equidistant from each other, all filled with water. (laughs) And no path. I know there were 200 because that's what was on the bag that was left. 200 cups. So I sloshed in and taught my class. The really cool thing was that when I got back after that class, it was all cleaned up. That was nice. Um, Some of you who are thinking of pranking the pastors, uh, 
BJ, uh, I'm sorry, Lewis and I have agreed, if you have to, do it to BJ. <laughs> and, and by the way, the deacon who made the coffee this morning switched the decaf and the regular. Hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> There's a, a Christian humor website called Babylon Bee. Some of you know it. They ran a satire this week about the discovery of a manuscript that finally tells the truth of how the resurrection of Jesus was really, and it's a Christian satire site, the resurrection of Jesus was really an elaborate April Fool's joke. Jesus' followers sneaked by the Roman guards, rolled away the stone, stole Jesus' body, and slipped away again unnoticed. It was all a great hoax that just happened to get everyone involved killed when they refused to admit it was a joke. You can imagine that kind of satire. I have read to you before the statement by Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia uh, that he wrote about 20 years ago about the world's scorn for Christians who believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. Scalia wrote, quote, The so-called wise do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, so everything from the Easter morning to the ascension had to be made up by groveling enthusiasts as a part of their plan to get themselves martyred, unquote. To Justice Scalia, that made little sense. He believed Jesus rose from the dead. I agree. Last week, Lewis taught on Romans 8.34 and focused on the idea of our guilt and the fact that Jesus Christ paid for your guilt on the cross and he saves you when you place your faith in him. That was last Sunday. Today I want to start with that same text, Romans 8:34. And I want to I want us to focus on the resurrection of Jesus because there is a precious truth about security here. Refuge, shelter, protection. And this is what I mean. I, I think we all want to know that we're loved. And that we're loved unconditionally. Some of you have never experienced that security. That absolutely unconditional love. Maybe you grew up in a home where there was a parent whose love for you was based on your performance. Whether athletics or in school or whatever it may have been. Maybe it's a husband or a wife where if you don't fulfill your side of the deal, they withhold their love. Maybe it's you who does this. And sadly, many people transfer that kind of thinking to God. That God loves and forgives you as long as you continue to earn that love. As long as you don't bump up against the threshold where you displease Him enough to where he turns off grace. But that's not the God of the Bible, as the book of Romans is made abundantly clear. And I, I want to say this. Some of you are on the other side of that spectrum, and, and you were raised in homes by parents, or maybe you have a husband or a wife, who loves you no matter what you do. And you just know that. I want you to be aware of how rare that is, how precious that is, how biblical that is. 
Because that's the kind of love we're talking about. The love that will not let you go. With, when, when love and forgiveness are unconditional and freely given, then you are secure. And that's God's love for you. There is no sin which you will ever commit Number one, that surprises God, that takes him by surprise. And number two, for which Christ has not already died. Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees our forgiveness and our standing before God, who will not let you go. But, and here's the thing, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, if it was all a hoax, if it did not literally happen, then, friends, that security of God's love and forgiveness and grace is just shredded and ripped away. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then everything I have just said evaporates and vanishes, and you're on your own. Listen again to Romans 8.34 that Lewis preached from last week. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. And and the context is back in verse 31. Who is for you? If God is for you, who can be against you? Who is against you? And all these amazing, amazing things follow if God is for us. But if Christ is not raised from the dead, then it's all a lie. There are four facts that are mentioned in verse 34. Jesus died, was raised, ascended, and intercedes for us. And Paul's claiming these as facts, not April Fool's pranks or jokes or hoaxes. Facts. But what if the resurrection did not really happen? And the answer that the earliest Christians gave is this. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, then Christianity falls apart. And we are stupid and pathetic. And we should rewrite Romans 8, 34, something like this. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, and instead of being raised, who stayed dead? Who, instead of being at the right hand of God, is still in his grave? Who, instead of interceding for us, no one is interceding for us. We're on our own. And we've been working our way through the book of Romans chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And the advantage to a slow pace is that you get to dig in and and see in technicolor uh, the argument and and all its glory and depth. But the drawback of a slow pace is that sometimes you miss connections between the larger segments. There's some dots to connect here in the book of Romans. There are earlier verses that talk about the resurrection that are easy to miss as you're going through verse by verse. But these verses prove that everything falls apart if the resurrection did not happen. And and by the way, if you are here today as a visitor and maybe as someone who does not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you are here, maybe you're curious or you're here out of love for a loved one or for whatever reason that you're here. Hey, it's Easter Sunday. I'm so glad you're here. I am so glad that you're here with us today to to, to dig in with us. And I'm going to assume that you don't want to waste your time here. So if you want to follow what I'm about to say, you can read it for yourselves in, the, in those Bibles that are under the seats, uh, starting on page 122. But here's the thing. By now, this essential truth should be clear to you. 
as Christians, we do not look at the resurrection as some spiritual symbol. It's not an add-on that you can take or leave. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. But if Jesus is risen, and if that is true, then everything else makes sense. And if it's not, nothing makes sense. So let's connect the dots. I'm going to go back to Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The passages I'm going to be looking at are laid out in your bulletin notes. Romans 1, 3 and 4. I'm jumping into the middle of all of these contexts to make the point about the resurrection that we can extract from those contexts. In Romans 1, 3 and 4, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. If there is no resurrection, there is no declaration of Jesus' sonship, which affects our sonship. And no longer can you call out Abba, Father. We are no longer heirs of God in Christ Jesus. We no longer have access as sons and daughters. Look at the next one, chapter 4, Romans 4, verses 23 to 25. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees the forgiveness of our sins, our justification being declared righteous by faith before God. But if there is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness, there is no declaration, it is finished. There is no salvation, period, we're on our own. Look at chapter 6. Romans 6, verses 4 and 5. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Look down in verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. The resurrection secures our ability to walk in newness of life. And baptism is a picture of the church for the, of the, for the church at the beginning of that newness of life. But if there is no resurrection, then forget baptism. We should just extend the church out. We don't need that extra. We, you know, we can use that extra space. Oh, no, wait a minute. If there is no resurrection, then why are you here? What's the point? There's no reason to be here at all. There is no newness of life to celebrate. If it's all a hoax, then death is master over us. And once you die, you die, period. That's the end. Turn to chapter 7, verse 4. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The resurrection joins us to Christ 
so that we may no longer be in bondage to sin, but set free to bear fruit for God. If there is no resurrection, you're still in your sins. So am I. We're still slaves to sin. We're still in our chains. There's no purpose also for your life that extends beyond this life. As Carrie Livgren saying, all we are is dust in the wind, right? All we are is dust in the wind. He later said in an interview, there's got to be more to life than life. And he became a Christian later after that. But if there is no resurrection, that's it. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection of Jesus by the spirit is a guarantee of your resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, the spirit is a fraud. And when you die, you're gone, period. You're on your own. Are you beginning to hear a refrain here? Okay. Look at chapter 8, verse 34. And here we catch up to where we've been studying recently. Chapter 8, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our security as children of God and anchors the truth that Jesus will never let us go. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He will never let us go. He loves us forever, and he intercedes for us now. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear eternity. But if Jesus was not raised from the dead, your faith is based on a lie, it's a myth, and you're on your own. One more. Look at Romans chapter 10. Starting with verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. The truth of the resurrection secures your salvation. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, no salvation, no security. Your faith is based on a lie. Nothing more than wishful thinking. You're, where are you? You're on your own. The early Christians were not gullible about this. They were not eagerly awaiting Jesus' resurrection after his crucifixion. 
They were hiding. In fact, they were the first resurrection skeptics. Listen to this list I've I've compiled from Scripture. Mary Magdalene assumed that Jesus' body, when she went to the tomb and it was not there, she assumed it had been taken. When the body was gone, she wasn't thinking resurrection. She was thinking transferred. That was her assumption. They weren't expecting this. After some women did see Jesus rise alive from the dead, the 11 disciples wouldn't believe the eyewitness testimony of the women who said they saw him alive. Quote, their words seemed to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Luke 24, 11. After the disciples claimed that, after the disciples saw him, and then they started claiming that Jesus was resurrected, two disciples on the Emmaus Road did not believe either what the women said or what the disciples said. So what you have is, a, is ever-widening circles, uh, ever-extending circles, accretions of people who actually saw Jesus. And then he appears to more and to more. James remained an unbeliever until Jesus appeared to him. Thomas disbelieved the collective witness of everybody and said, I've got to have... Hands-on, empirical proof, that's what I've got to have. Although Paul believed in the empty tomb, he did not believe in the resurrection until Jesus appeared to him. He was a skeptic's skeptic. Over 500 people in Jerusalem saw him alive, who were alive to give sworn affidavits to the reality of what they saw. And all of these skeptics were convinced by one thing. They saw Jesus alive from the dead we're not talking about mass hallucinations we're not talking about seances and darkened rooms we're talking about appearances from Jesus Christ to these people at dawn at noon at mid-afternoon and then they began to proclaim he is risen as he said they began to remember all the things that he said about rising from the dead and I want you to keep in mind that as they began to proclaim this they proclaimed it in Jerusalem where all these eyewitnesses could be questioned, interrogated, beaten, and die. And that's what happened. Very shortly, thousands of first century Christians were prepared to die for Jesus as their God. Now, we've been connecting the dots in Romans, but for a few minutes, I want you to turn with me to the next book over. The very next book is 1 Corinthians. First of all, a little background. The Roman world was very cynical about truth. Do you remember the statement of one famous Roman official who asked, what is truth? Who was that? Pilate. And who was standing in front of him? The way, the truth, and the life. Professor Alan Bloom of the University of Chicago wrote a classic indictment of university education in America. Have you heard people say, that's true for you, but it's not true for me? That's the view called relativism. We've talked about it before. But Professor Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And he wrote this 31 years ago. And it's both diagnostic and prophetic. Listen to what he wrote. There is one thing a professor can absolutely be certain of. 
Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. The study of history and of culture, according to this view, teaches that all the world was mad in the past. Men always thought that they were right, and that led to wars, persecution, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. And if a professor questions this assumption, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be astonished as though he were calling into question 2 plus 2 equals 4. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is not to think that you are right at all. The students, of course, he writes, cannot defend their opinion. It is something with which they have been indoctrinated. (laughs) Relativism. It's not a new thing. If you need a reminder as to how modern the Bible is, just read the theme verse of the Old Testament book of Judges, repeated twice in that book at the beginning and at the end. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So truth is what's true for me. Morality is what's true for me. Okay, here's where I'm going with this. I told you I'm moving over one book from Romans to 1 Corinthians. The city of Corinth majored in relativism. One of the many points of connection between these two books, Romans and 1 Corinthians, is that Paul was at Corinth when he wrote Romans. So if you were to live in first century Corinth, it would be like living in sort of Sin City, Las Vegas, or whatever you'd want to label it, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what it was in the first century. It was Corinth. And it's not accidental that Corinth was also the home of several schools of rhetoric where the goal was not to train people to pursue truth, but how to win arguments. And you see this reflected in 1 Corinthians. Paul said, I'm not coming to you with cleverness of speech, but to proclaim one thing, Christ and Him crucified. And there are people who are saying, hey, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Peter. Remember? Same message, different styles. Schools of rhetoric. So you see this reflected in the careful logic that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians, especially in the most extensive defense of the doctrine of the resurrection. I read it to you earlier. I'm going to go there now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to reread these first few verses, which are all about the centrality of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the centrality of that to the gospel. If there is any place in the New Testament that defines what the gospel is, 1 Corinthians 15 has it. And it's the first few verses. So you can mark these verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Okay? This is what he said. This is the gospel. The gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand by which you're saved, if you hold fast to that which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he's talking in in advance about the argument that he's going to be making, because if Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, there are some doctrines that are of secondary importance. This one is of primary importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And the the verb he was raised 
is in the perfect tense. And what that means, it is, it is completed action with ongoing results. He was raised. Same word, same tense that's used. It is finished. Same tense. We rejoice in the truth that he was raised. Completed action, ongoing results, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain now. It's about, now it's 25 years after the resurrection. And what he's saying is most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep in Jesus. But what he's saying is, check it out. Check it out. Talk to these people. They saw him alive. So ask them. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Do you see what he's saying? Now, our culture today, like first century Corinth, is fixated on the idea of what's true for me, what's true for you. But the Bible rests on facts and says, if this is only true for you and not true for all, then it's a fairy tale. And we've all got better things to do with our time than be here on a beautiful Sunday morning. I want you look overhead, please, everybody. Just look up at the ceiling. Just look. Do you see the sprinkler system? Do you see the pipes? Have you ever noticed how perfect the paint job is in carefully hiding the pipes? Because they were added afterwards. It's kind of an oversight. <laughs> it's one of those oops <laughs> things. You see those pipes? Do they make you feel secure and safe if there were a fire? Just wondering. No pranking going on here, okay? Uh, there's a UPI story that was told years ago of a Midwestern hospital. The medical and, and administrative staff of a hospital had absolute faith in the sprinkler system of the hospital that it would protect them for over 35 years. But when they renovated the hospital, they discovered that the system was only missing one thing water. It had never been connected to the water line coming in. Yeah. So there, if a fire had broken out, would the faith that these people had in the sprinkler system be valid? No, it would not. Well, I believe that water's coming down and that's true for me. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you they may have had sincere faith, but they would have been sincerely wrong. In order for faith to be valid, the object of faith must be truth. The Bible has no patience for faith in fairy tales. Okay, But there's one last witness to the resurrection that he continues in these verses. I stopped at verse 8. I'm sorry, I stopped it at verse 7. And, and this is the man who's writing these words. And he's writing these words to you and to me. And this is a man who's endured beatings, floggings, loss of family, loss of friends, loss of property, and pretty soon was going to be executed for his faith in Jesus. Look at verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He was untimely in the sense that it wasn't just after Jesus' resurrection, but after his ascension that Jesus came and appeared to Saul of Tarsus, who was on his way to Damascus, and he was pursuing his hobby. His hobby was executing Christians. 
torturing Christians to death. Saul of Tarsus knew that he was a sinner. He knew that a holy God cannot accept sinful men into his presence, but he thought that he was doing pretty well. He knew that there was a chasm between God and man that was infinite, but he was trying to do what all other religions tried to do, and that is fill up the chasm with his own good works, keeping the law, all that kind of thing. He later wrote, I was outstripping all my contemporaries. I had my good works, my position, my prestige, my education, my zeal. And that's not all. He was absolutely convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was evil because Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus said that forgiveness of sins was a gift to be received by faith. And that was not good news to Saul of Tarsus because that meant all of his efforts to, to score points with God, to fill up that chasm with his good works, were meaningless. What happened? Jesus showed up. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And at that moment, Saul of Tarsus thought he was a dead man. But he was dead in trespasses and sins. And God made him alive together in Christ. Because by grace, you are saved. And it's all true. He realized it's all true. Listen, look at verse, verse 9. In fact, look at the number of times the word grace occurs. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. This is what we preached. This is what you believed. I persecuted the church, but God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. Don't miss the point. Paul is not wallowing in his sinful past. Paul is reveling in the fact that he's forgiven. Jesus bridged the chasm for him. Jesus' resurrection proved to Paul that being religious, being a good person, doing what he defined as good works was not enough. And later he referred to all those good things that, in which he was putting his tr trust, the good works, the religious life, the spiritual zeal following the moral law, all those things he, he, that he was trying to fill that chasm in to reach God. He said, I've regarded all those things as lost. They're vapor, they're nothing, they're dung. That was his term. And I've thrown all that away and regarded it as dung for the sake of knowing Christ because Christ bridged the chasm. It's all of grace. And because of that sweet comfort, we revel in the grace and in the unconditional love of God who loves us so much that he'd rather die than live without us. What wondrous Love is this, oh my soul. Well, what have we said today? We've asked the question, what if it's all a lie? Some huge conspiracy. A lot more could be said about the evidence both inside and outside the Bible regarding Jesus' resurrection, but the historical case for the resurrection is solid. We've also tried to connect the dots of the resurrection passages in Romans and found that there's no salvation apart from the resurrection of Jesus. You cannot separate our salvation from Jesus' resurrection. If a resurrection did not happen, we're toast. We're on our own. We've looked at the testimony, the most skeptical of all the first century Jews, Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as Paul the Apostle, 
and seen how his entire worldview was turned upside down when he met the resurrected Jesus. Some people distort the gospel. Hey, come to Jesus and get wealthy and get healthy and all your problems will be solved. No, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are weighed down with this world. I will give you rest. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you forgiveness of sins. I will put my arms around you. I will hold you. I will never let you go. Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. I mentioned Thomas earlier. You remember what he said when he saw the risen Christ? My Lord and my God. And you know what Jesus said to Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. Who's that? That's us. If you are here as an unbeliever, maybe you're trying to fill up that chasm between you and God with good works, good intentions, whatever it might be. Maybe you're interested in the Bible and, and know that there's, something, there's got to be more to life than life. Uh, maybe you've been jaded by the hypocrisy of some Christians you've known. Maybe you just want to talk <laughs> and find out more. I'd, I'd love to talk with you. Lewis Wood, all, BJ, all of us, talk with you about, about what the Bible says about salvation and about God's love for you and about dealing with your sin. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we're playing games of self-delusion. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then everything changes. Everything. And we're all accountable to God for what we do with that absolute truth. Remember this message from the risen Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And remember what Jesus said to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked Martha the question that every one of us must answer. Here was Jesus' question. Do you believe this. Father, we thank you for the truth that he has risen. We thank you for the grace of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I ask that we would celebrate this day rejoicing in the salvation that is ours because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that anyone who is here, who is interested, would love to talk with you. But anyone who is here can place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and have the good gift of a secure, eternal salvation. Thank you, Father, for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.